0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and reclaiming misogynist epithets. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Heather Schwedell, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm going to be talking to Andy Zeisler, a writer and editor who may be best known for co-founding Bitch Media, which recently announced that it will be ceasing operations in June. Bitch started as a zine in the mid-90s and went on to influence a generation of feminist media, including the very podcast you're listening to now. The timing here really stings. One of the publishing world's most respected, independent feminist voices is closing, just as the country has been plunged into a state of feminist emergency. I'm referring to news that is still top of mind for so many of us, the leak of the Supreme Court opinion that would strike down Roe v. Wade and end federal protection of abortion rights. This is hardly the time when we want to see feminist media contracting. So we're going to talk to Andy all about the state of feminist media, what happened to Bitch, and whether some of the same backlash that led to the end of Roe was a factor. We'll be back with Andy after a short break. Hey, Waves listeners. We hope you're loving the show. And if you are, you should subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes come out bright and early every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes. We've recently talked about ecofeminism, the schism among doomsday preppers, and what's going on with edible arrangements. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Waves. I'm joined now by Andy Zeisler, co-founder of Bitch Media. Andy, welcome to the Waves. Thanks so much for having me. Let's go back for a second to Bitch's origin story, the beginning of it all. Why did you decide the world needed Bitch, and how did you make it happen? My two co-founders and I
1: were living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we had pretty recently uh, graduated college, and we were, you know, working day jobs. And most of what we spent our free time doing was consuming popular culture, um, whether that was TV or movies or magazines or books. And we spent a lot of time just talking amongst ourselves about why the sort of pop culture representations we were seeing out there just didn't seem to reflect what we uh, knew, what we saw around us. everything still felt incredibly stereotypical, whether it was, you know, Pepsi commercials or Beverly Hills 90210. There was so much pop culture that really seemed stuck in gendered stereotypes and assumptions. And that was just something we we spent a lot of energy talking about. My co-founder, Lisa, and I had both been interns at a teen magazine called Sassy in New York City, where we grew up. And Sassy was kind of a cool teen magazine that took a very different approach to talking to young women, and and men for that matter, about what was important to them. It was very forthcoming about things like being gay, dressing how you wanted, even if that sort of flouted gender assumptions. It took a a really refreshing approach to to teenhood. And right around the time we started Bitch, Sassy had been sold to this mainstream publisher. We called it Bizarro Sassy. It became something that seemed to take the aesthetics of what Sassy had been, but superimposed the sort of classic teen girl ethos over it. When we had started Bitch, Ms. was still a wonderful magazine, but it really seemed to dismiss uh, popular culture, but also young women as sort of agents of change. And so we started talking about like, what would a magazine that sort of blended Sassy and Ms. look like? And what would a magazine that really aimed to reach young people by using pop culture as a frame through which to talk about things like gender and power and sexuality and things like that, what would that look like? That was something we wanted to read, but we couldn't, you know, we didn't see it out there in the market. So it felt like, well, I guess we need to make the thing that we want to read.
0: And so we did. One thing about Bitch that is sort of obviously radical is the title. I think we forget how big a deal it was to title a magazine Bitch now you maybe say to your friend, hey, bitch, Um, but bitch was a bigger deal, or it was more transgressive back then. Can you tell me a bit about choosing it as a title?
1: You know, a lot of it really came down to the fact that strong women, women who stand up for themselves, women who don't act the way everyone wants them to, there are a lot of words that aren't gendered to talk about people who are not acting like you want them to. But with women, it's, it's like bitch is always the first one. And growing up in New York City, we had certainly heard it a lot. You know, if you're walking down the street, someone cat calls you and you don't answer, bitch is, is the thing that you're going to be hearing next. We really thought about the way that there was a kind of anticipatory retaliation to the title. And so we were like, well, you know, People are probably going to call us that. So we're, we're just going to go ahead and,
0: and do it and
1: call ourselves that first.
0: What to you was the platonic ideal of a bitch piece?
1: The platonic ideal of a bitch piece was was something that looked at a sort of familiar pop culture media product and asked questions that weren't necessarily asked by by mainstream outlets, or a piece that took something that was very popular and pulled out a kind of larger theme of it. A really good example of that is when Desperate Housewives came on the air and everyone was talking about it and everyone was talking about, you know, these suburban housewives being bad or these suburban housewives being subversive. The pitch that we got about it was about how Desperate Housewives was being framed as something women watched as a so-called guilty pleasure. And so the piece ended up being about how the idea of the guilty pleasure is sort of an inherently feminized concept. This idea that that women consume pop culture in a way that they are sort of socialized to feel guilty about, like, I shouldn't be watching this. The voice made a big difference. A really conversational tone was kind of a hallmark of the pieces we really loved. A sense of understanding that the concept of a feminist analysis of pop culture was something that a lot of people were going to roll their eyes at and say, well, why don't you just change the channel? And sort of engaging with the activity of analyzing itself and looking at that.
0: Feminism and its place in the culture changed so much over this period. Did those changes sort of affect the magazine's fortunes or did being a nonprofit, you know, enable you to, to stay pretty safe from all of that? How did that affect things?
1: Well, when you talk about the changes in feminism during that time, do you sort of mean the, the rise of, of feminist media and sort of online
0: feminist media? That, and I think its place in the culture in the 90s, being a feminist was considered sort of alternative in a way that it it evolved to sort of not be. It became a more mainstream stance. And and I think online media was definitely part of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, when we started Bitch, feminism was sort of, had started to reenter the public imagination by way of things like riot girl, and sassy. And that was, you know, after this really protracted backlash to second wave feminism in the 1980s. And so, yeah, I mean, at the time we we started Bitch, feminism was still not something that people were, you know, scrambling to associate themselves with. But right, it's true that particularly with the rise of the feminist blogosphere, and social media as well, feminism became something that was de- demystified for more people. For Bitch, for a really long time, we didn't really think of other feminist outlets as our competition. We really treated it as a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, the more feminist media there is, the more feminists there will be. And the more feminist media there is, the less any one outlet will have to feel like it is all things to all people. Because, you know, (laughs) that's always tough for a feminist publication. There's always the sense of like, well, why don't you do this? Or why don't you cover that? For us, it really felt like the rise of more feminist publications, whether online or offline, was a positive in the sense that it enhanced kind of everyone's possible media diet.
0: In interviews over the last few years, you've said things to the effect of that you wished that Bitch wasn't still around in that the company had managed to put itself out of business because the culture was just so evolved that it didn't need Bitch anymore. That's not the terms um, the the company and the project are ending on. Would you like it to have gone on indefinitely? when I said that
1: our goal was always to put ourselves out of business, that was certainly tongue in cheek. I think, you know, my hope for bitch was that it would evolve and continue being an important resource for people who were just starting to form an understanding of and relationship with feminism. There is so much media out there and it is so hard often and i would imagine particularly for young people to figure out what speaks to them and then figure out whether what speaks to them is is even telling them the truth or whether it is a mouthpiece for a larger organization or parent company that has particular commercial aims I think having a reader-supported nonprofit feminist outlet, I mean, having more than one out there, <laughs> I, I hope that is always the case. Unfortunately, it just, it feels like a particularly bad time for Bitch to go under. It's never been clearer than right now that there's a vast difference between feminism as kind of an aesthetic and feminism as a... You know, foundational need and a foundational process of liberatory politics.
0: That's something that I definitely want to get into, but we're going to take a break here. If you want to hear more from Andy and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist? Where today, we're debating whether, asking whether things are feminist is feminist. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate+. Plus. Members get no ads on all podcasts, no paywall on the Slate website, and bonus content for this show and others, like the Political Gap Fest, Slate Money, and more. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We're back, and Andy, I want to return to what you were saying about now being such a hard time in media, in feminist media in particular, um, with Bitch being hardly the only feminist publication or independent publication to struggle over the last few years. The writer Jude Doyle wrote a lovely remembrance of Bitch um, on Medium, which we'll link to on our show page. But one point they made uh, really stood out to me, They wrote that these closures are a sign of the current anti-feminist backlash and that the shuttering of feminist publications and the impending appeal of Roe v. Wade are intrinsically linked. So this might be incredibly naive or failing to see the big picture of me, but I tend to think of Bitch's situation and others like it as more about the economic realities of the publishing industry or maybe even um, consumer fatigue with what you've called, you know, feminism as an aesthetic, marketplace feminism. So what do you think about that? Well I love Jude's
1: piece. I just thought it was really lovely and I, I really appreciated that they um talked about so many different aspects of what made Bitch different. I agree with you though that so much of Bitch's struggles have always been related to the idea of how people value media and whether they value independent media. It was really never easy financially to be a a feminist nonprofit. Like none of us got in it for the money. (laughs) That was never a thing. But over the years, certainly, the thing that made us stand out in an increasingly digital marketplace was the fact that we also had a print magazine. But the print magazine became increasingly hard to sustain because the cost of printing kept going up. The magazine distribution process is very arcane and often quite wasteful. And so that, in many ways kind of presented us with a real dilemma in the sense that the print magazine was our, you know, our flagship product, but it was also the thing that tied up the most money and kept us from really being able to to develop a lot of our non-magazine programming, whether that was, you know, podcasts or our campus program. We really had so much invested in the magazine itself and really valued it, and knew our readers really valued it. But yeah, the the economics were, were always against us, and we're just sort of getting more so.
0: So after the announcement was made um, about closing, and there was um, the initial round of loving eulogies, some former bitch staffers spoke up on social media about working conditions at the magazine and company, basically talking about how overworked they felt. Uh, One of them was Marina Watanabe, a former bitch social media editor, and she wrote a thread on Twitter that she ended by asking, is it possible to be an independent feminist org that exists under capitalism and not have these issues of burnout and overwork? What do you think? (laughs) I mean, I think that's an incredibly valid question,
1: and it's certainly one that has come up so many times during Bitch's Lifespan. And unsustainability isn't just financial. You know, if if everyone is feeling overworked and everyone is feeling burned out and everyone feels like they're doing two or three jobs, that's also not sustainable. I think with nonprofits, and often. With with workplaces that are by and for women, there can be this sort of dangerous dynamic that you get into of feeling like, if I complain that I'm working too hard or I'm not getting paid enough, I am going against the spirit of this project. We were always very conscious of of not wanting to to perpetuate that. At the same time, I feel like increasingly... So many media organizations, nonprofit or not, have those problems. It is a problem with capitalism and not just feminism. At the same time, the troubles that Bitch has had over the past few years in terms of capacity and money and staff attrition really did put a ton of pressure on our staff. And um, I think it is a testament to their excellence as staff and as editors and and writers that they continued doing amazing work but again i would never argue that that is a good way to run a publication i think overwork and burnout are really endemic to most progressive organizations and i can't really say for sure what would solve that. But yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a way in which feminism and capitalism to begin with are very much at odds in the market and of course in workplaces.
0: So another one of the things that we lose when we lose outlets like Bitch is places where young writers can cut their teeth. What advice would you give to a feminist writer who's just starting out right now and seeing bad news like this um, in their feeds?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult and, and really the most rewarding part of Bitch for me and my favorite part has always been working with emerging writers and young writers to sort of figure out what their passion is, what they can write about. In a way that no one else can. I do think the question of feminism as an aesthetic versus feminism as a living, evolving movement is something that is not necessarily offered particular nuance in the digital landscape of websites. It's really hard to give advice because. I I don't think that young writers should feel like they have to have a certain set of politics or beliefs to have a career as a writer. So really, I think the thing that I would say is find something that you can write about in a way that no one else can and really carve out that place for yourself. That's harder and harder to do, but I... I do believe it's
0: possible. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Andy, what are you loving right now?
1: So right now I'm loving a new book called Time Zone J by Julie Doucet, who is a French Canadian comic artist. Julie Doucet is one of the first comics artists I discovered in, um, in the early nineties when I was starting to draw comics and was sort of really looking for, for women comics to emulate. And she had a comic book called dirty plot plot is uh, like a French Canadian slang for vagina. And it was just a really fantastic, like it was just back then what was called alternative comics. It was just, um, just really, really raw and sort of confrontational and, and very busy. You know, every panel was just really chock full of of things to look at. Her sort of confessional language and, and sort of recounting of, you know, just being a young woman in a city, drawing comics, interacting with people, I just found it very captivating. And so it's... Very, very cool to see that she's still working and, and still evolving and, and just doing this great work. And
0: and I, I just love this book. I am going to endorse a book as well. I want to recommend a novel called Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. The title refers to ghosts as in ghosting. Uh, so that should clue you in that this is a novel about modern dating, among other things. Uh, the second I finished this book, I wanted to recommend it to all my single friends because I just think it nails the experience of being a single woman in your 30s, which on a bad day can feel like the absolute worst thing in the world to be. (laughs) Um, And not just because of the hopelessness of dating, but also because of the feeling that your life is diverging from that of all the coupled off friends and people that you know. Um, And that sounds sad, but uh, I think this book is actually incredibly witty and charming. It's set in London, so it feels a bit like an updated Bridget Jones's Diary, um, another book I love, but I would say that it's a little more wise and wistful. Uh, So I hadn't heard of Dolly Alderton or really been familiar with her before reading this novel, and uh, she also has a book of essays, so I can't wait to read that as well. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director, with Alicia Montgomery providing oversight and moral support. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. This is the story of the one.